Hope you guys are doing good. Everybody well? Fired up? Yep. Well, glad you're here um, and excited as we continue to worship God through His Word this morning. Um, I want to share something with you that actually felt like the Lord put on my heart. It's been several weeks ago now. And uh, uh, just something that I hope will stir us a little bit to pursue God more, to um, go after Jesus and, and, and really have even more of a hunger for Him. Um, and for some of us, maybe today, it's when the Holy Spirit, as we hear God's truth, that the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see Jesus clearly for the first time. For some of us, it's maybe where we begin to see um, God more clearly, uh, even though we've been walking with him for a while. And again, as I said, for some of us, maybe it'll be increasing our desire and stirring us up to desire more of God, to see him and walk with him closer. And so um, my prayer has been that, that that would take place in our heart, um, that God would do something in us this morning that leaves us different, that um, we walk out of here differently than we walked in. And so we're going to be reading from John chapter 4, uh, the gospel of John chapter 4. It's kind of a, probably a, a little bit of an odd passage to use on Easter. Um, but it's something that I felt like the Lord spoke to me that I was specifically um, drawn to for today. And so I want to read John chapter 4. In this, Jesus, as we're going to read, he's going from Judea, which was an area kind of to the south, to um, Galilee, which is to the, to the north of Judea. To do that, he goes through Samaria. And we're going to read this passage where Jesus encounters this Samaritan woman. I want to read through it, talk through it a little bit. Then we'll pray and we'll get into the message and, and what I feel like the Lord has put on my heart. So let's begin here in verse 1. It says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now at this point I want to pause just a second. I want to encourage you to sort of put yourself in this setting that we're about to read about, okay? Um, sometimes we read the Bible and it's sort of just black and white words. We don't really enter ourselves into um, the story. I want you to picture this, that this is 2,000 years ago. You know, we're, we're uh, in this um, really dry land. Water was something that was very valued. And Jesus has been traveling. And because of that, he's tired. We're going to see where he's sitting by this well. I want you to be able to hear and picture in your mind this encounter, that, that, that we can see what's taking place here. It says, now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, where near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and G Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well it was about noon, and so Jesus has sat down by this well. This well's been there for hundreds of years, um, worn out from the traveling. And, and then verse 7 says, A Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me 
for a drink, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. I want to clarify this just a little bit. In this, um, this Samaritan woman is coming to the well to draw water. Um, Jesus is sitting there. Uh, he asks her for a drink. She recognizes in him that he's Jewish, she's Samaritans. Jews and Samaritans did not get along. Jews um, considered Samaritans to be sort of a half-breed race. They were part Gentile, part Jew. So they also considered them to be impure religiously. They saw them as unclean is what they would have called them. So therefore, any interaction with them, um, association with them would then make them unclean. So there was a lot of animosity that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So this verse, I believe, encapsulates, sort of um, points us to the main thing that, that we can learn from Jesus' encounter with this woman. Uh, he, he tells her, if you knew, if you knew who it is that's asking you for a drink, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. And so he's saying, you don't recognize who I am. He, he's trying to open her eyes to see more clearly who is in front of her. This whole encounter, really, as you read it, it's about Jesus revealing himself and the truth to this lady. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? So there's this misunderstanding in all of this that she's not quite grasping it yet. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? She's saying, are you greater than the ancestor, this, this patriarch of our faith? Are you really greater than him? To which Jesus basically replies, yes. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's trying to correct this misunderstanding. He's saying, look, ma'am, I'm not talking about physical drinking water. I'm talking about something that I will give the Holy Spirit who will be in you, who's going to quench you in a way that you never thought possible. We're going to see that this lady is, is in many ways searching and grasping at, at things to try to satisfy. And Jesus is telling her, in all of your striving and straining and searching and seeking, I have the one thing that can truly satisfy you. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Many people believe she was kind of said this in a sarcastic way. Like, he, she's like, all right, yeah, 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 give me this water. I don't want to have to keep coming back here, right? She probably had walked half a mile or so to get there. So she's like, just give me the water. He told her, and so this is where Jesus is cool. Like, like she's trying to like kind of get a little snarky with Jesus, right? So Jesus is like, okay, okay, let's shift gears a little bit. Go call your husband and come back. At that point, she's like, ooh, Dang. She said, well, let me try to get out of this. I have no husband. But Jesus continues to push the issue a little bit. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. At this point, I believe all the blood 
leaves her face. And she's like, who told him? Right? You ever been caught, right? And you're like, ah. And, and so then she's realizing, okay, how did this guy find this out? Her eyes are starting to be open. Remember I told you this whole thing is about Jesus revealing who he is, correcting misunderstandings about God. He's trying to show her this. She says, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. She said, I can see. She's starting to see. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And so she's like, okay, this guy, obviously there's something going on with this guy. He's some kind of prophet. If he could read that, he knew that. There's something going on with him. So she says, I can see you're a prophet. And then she brings up the most contentious issue that existed between Jews and Samaritans. She says, we worship on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. They built a temple there and they worshiped there because they weren't allowed to worship with the Jews. So the Jews, though, believed they worshiped in Jerusalem. And so she brings up the most, most glaring, contentious deal that they had between each other. They did, not, they, they, they did not agree on where they were supposed to worship. And she brings this up almost to say, if you are a prophet, it's almost like a test. She said, if you're a prophet, then answer this question for me. To which Jesus, again, puts her kind of, opens her eyes by answering her imposed question. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. And this is the verse that God really put in my heart. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. It goes on, she goes back and she calls the people from her town and she ends up bringing many of them to come and meet Christ. He spends time with them. Many of them become believers in him. It's interesting though, she brings up this worship of this place or that place. And to that, Jesus doesn't say, well, yeah, you know, you should be worshiping in Jerusalem. Or yeah, he does say, listen, the Messiah is coming from the Jews. They have the line of revelation. They're the ones that he will come from. But he tells her plainly, listen, lady, listen, there's a time coming. In fact, it has now come because of the one who's standing in front of you that true worshipers will not go to this mountain or that mountain to worship. True worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, true worshipers will worship because the spirit of God has been put in them, because the spirit of God has opened their eyes to the truth, because they recognize who God is and what God's done for them. They'll begin to worship out of the spirit and out of truth. And this will be true worship. It won't be based on a place. It won't be based on a certain time. It'll be based on an encounter with the living God who's put his spirit in us and his spirit makes us cry out to our father in heaven. So I want to pray and jump in. Let's go. Lord, thank you for your truth.
God, otherwise you would be unknowable. We'd be left to speculation and superstition and suspicion even, God. And and today we, we can see who you are because you've revealed yourself in Christ. I pray, Lord, that that becomes more clear today, God. I pray that our incorrect ways of seeing you and thinking about you could begin to be corrected, God. God, it is a tall, tall ask, a big ask to ask you, Lord, to unwind so much of what's been learned. But God, we know you're the God who does exceedingly abundantly more than all we can think or imagine. And so I pray in the next few minutes you would work in that way. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. How many of you have ever had an encounter where... Like you saw someone coming at you. It could have been somebody you knew. It could have been somebody you didn't know. But you saw them coming at you and you kind of misunderstood their intentions, right? Like you see them coming and they got like a scowl on their face and and you're like, oh my gosh, they're about to chew me out. And then they come up and give you a hug or something, right? Or or you see them coming and they look kind of happy and you're like, hey, all right. And then they get up there and then they just chew you out. You ever had something like that where you just sort of misread somebody? Well, one one time, it was not long after I became a Christian, um, I'd gone to this revival. It was at a church that, it, it was very different than any church I'd ever been to. It was very charismatic, and, and so there was, a, you know, people kind of jumping around. It was, it was just different than anything I'd ever seen. And, and during the worship service, they were playing a song. I happened to look over to my right, and, and coming down the, the outside aisle is this guy, and this guy looked really rough. Okay, like had this bandana on his head and, and he was like, if you wear a bandana, I'm not saying you're rough. I'm just saying this guy was. And so, no, you don't like people with bandana. No, I'm not saying that. But he, he's coming down. He's kind of rough. Looked like he could have just killed somebody, right? And so he's kind of walking down and kind of creepy looking and kind of suspicious looking. And I'm over there and I'm like, I don't know what this guy's up to, but I'm going to keep an eye on him. And so I'm watching him. I'm like, is he going to try to shoot up the place? I mean, what's he going to do, you know? And I'm sort of watching him, and he gets down to the front, and he walks right out into the front of everybody. And I'm like, here it goes, right? And he just starts dancing. He's like dancing around. And this guy you never would have thought was like a dancer, right? But he goes down, and he's just in front of everybody doing like some kind of interpretive dance or something. And he's just dancing around, worshiping. And I'm thinking about that. And in that moment, I felt so guilty, Right? I had totally misunderstood this guy. He, he, I completely judged this guy based off of how he looked um, and my own experience and what my experience had kind of taught me about people that look that way, right? And, and we do it all the time. We make judgments on people based on an outside appearance, not what's on the inside or who they really are. And so I've become suspicious of this guy. I'm questioning his intentions. I'm wondering what he's really about, all of these things. And then it turns out like, He's probably worshiping God in a way that I'd be too ashamed to, right? This guy's excited about God, and and I realized I'd misread this guy. I think when we look at that, that's true for many of us when it comes to God. I believe with God, many times we come to this place where we doubt God's intentions. We doubt um, what he's like. We question what he's like. We become suspicious of what he's like or of who he is. We become um, very, uh, almost even um, 
superstitious with God. So that we're kind of like, he might be like this, he might be like that. I'm not real sure exactly what he's like. I'm a little suspicious. I'm a little doubting his intentions. We don't really know. And see, here's the issue with this. And this is what this woman is struggling with. The challenge with this is when we misunderstand who God is, just like with somebody, misunderstanding who God is, um, his intentions, what he's like, will lead us to make an incorrect response towards God. If we doubt his intentions, doubt what he's about, doubt who he is, all of these things, it can lead us to a wrong response towards Jesus, a wrong response towards God. We see that with this woman, she's very much like we are in our culture. She's been taught that Jews and Samaritans don't associate That's what her experience has taught her. She's been taught through experience, through her religious experience, that Jews worship here, Samaritans worship here. And she's been taught that we're right, they're wrong. She's been taught all of these things through her religious experience. She's experienced all of this stuff. And see, here's the thing that we have to realize and, and be willing to admit, that for most of us in here today, the vast majority of our understanding of God at least began if it still does not exist based off of our experiences in life, the culture around us, and even our experiences in church. So that that's where much of our understanding of God has come from. If, listen, if we don't form our understanding of God out of his truth, then the only place that understanding can come from is through my experience. I make assumptions about what God is like. And many times, because of the world we live in, those assumptions are incorrect. And so I want you to really be able to see this, that in many ways we fall into the same place that this Woman, as Jesus tells her in verse 22, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. And I believe this in the church today, that we have good intentions most of the time. But I believe one of the reasons that there's such apathy really in the church today is because we try to worship a God that we're really not sure about. We try to worship a God that that we really don't know. We, we've heard things about him, but then some of the things we hear are contradictory or some of the things we hear don't really line up. We can't put our finger on it. And so we try to worship a God that we're really unsure about. But what does that do? It leads to just like with the guy in the worship service, I begin to doubt his intentions. I doubt his character. I doubt what he's there for. I begin to doubt all of these things. I was thinking about this and trying to think through what are some of the things that we as the church have have learned that really are incorrect, that our culture has taught us, that our church experience has taught us, that our, 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 even our experience in the world has taught us. The first one is this. You read in verses 17 through 19 where Jesus kind of reads her mail, right? She, he knows like the sin she's living in, the sin she's lived in. She, he knows all of these things. And you know, in that moment, like I said, her face, like all the blood probably left her head. She's probably like, oh my gosh, 
He knows everything about me. In fact, she knows that because she goes back and that's what he, she tells the people when she goes back to her town. She's like, come meet the man who told me everything I've ever done, everything about my life. And she's standing there. It's almost like she's got clothes on, but naked. And she's like, he knows everything about me. And so she's in this moment of like, oh my gosh. And for us, we kind of live there too. In fact, to think about God being all-knowing, it sort of terrifies us, doesn't it? It sort of brings shame to our minds and to our hearts when we think about that. Because if we were to put your worst moments on the screen today, who'd be excited about that? Not me. And so there's shame and all this. And so we spend our lives many times trying to overcome the shame or either we just say to heck with it, I'm just gonna be what I am and, and heck with it all. And in this, we've developed this mindset in the church that being a Christian is about being good. Being a Christian, I'm a Christian because I'm good. I'm, I'm loved by God because I'm good. But see, I want you to hear this. Jesus did not die to make people good. Jesus died to make dead people alive. Now we're called to be holy as he is holy. But the thing where we've got it backwards is we say, I'm going to be good so that God will accept me and love me. And then I'll be accepted. But where God has done it and where he's backwards from what we have learned is God says, I loved you even when you were my enemies. When you had no thought of me, I'd been thinking about you since before the foundations of the earth. I knew I was gonna create you, love you, you were gonna rebel against me, but I had a plan that was gonna bring you back to me. And so he says, listen, you being good or you being bad, it didn't affect my love for you. I still sent my son to die for you. The thing you need to recognize is that my love is because it is, not because of what you can do. And when we come to this place of finally embracing the love of God, recognizing that he is holy, that I'm not holy. In fact, I am far from holy. If holiness determined your right to stand on this stage, I'm out. It's not an excuse, it's just the truth. But when we, we see that he's holy, I'm not holy, how does he bridge the gap? Through Christ. Who have I become? The righteousness of God. And I see that and I recognize that something happens inside of me as the spirit opens up my eyes. I go from misunderstanding. I go from not knowing the one I worship to coming into the knowledge of the one who gave it all for me so I could come to him. And he changes me from the inside out. Instead of trying to make myself good to come to God, to be able to come into his presence, I recognize that I am utterly and thoroughly ruined unless he does something on my behalf. And then the Spirit opens my eyes. I see it. The Spirit fills my life as I put my trust in him. And my life is lived in worship of him. We gotta realize, church, that external things will never make us right with God. External things can't 
fix what's broken, broken internally. Only God can do that. Another thing, and it kind of falls in line with this, this lady's thinking here. They thought they had to go to this temple. The Jews thought they had to go to this temple. Jesus is saying, we're about to do away with temples. He just told them in John 2, he said, look, I'm the temple. Look, the temple is, is here. And he's gonna, I'm going to make you the temple. We got to realize that, 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 that we, though, fall into the same kind of mindset We fall into the same kind of mindset that our worship is determined by a place and a time. We think that Christianity is about showing up on Sunday. We think that coming to church or being in a building makes me a Christian. That doesn't make you a Christian. I can walk into a professional baseball stadium. That doesn't make me a major league baseball player. I wish it did. But just by walking in doesn't make us something. But in our culture, we've learned that if I show up at the right time and I do the right things, that's being a Christian. And nothing could be further from the truth. We're not Christians because we, we come to a building at a certain time on a certain day. We're Christians because we become followers of Jesus Christ. We don't come and gather to make ourselves acceptable. We gather because he's made us acceptable. We come to gather to be encouraged. We come to gather to worship. When I see what God's done, I see who he is. There's something in me that makes me want to come sing the songs to God. That makes me want to gather with other believers to be encouraged. There's something, there's a need in me that I need the fellowship of other believers. I need that encouragement that comes from that. But we've got to get out of the mindset that I just show up on Sunday because that's what good Christians do. It's not. There's so much more to God, guys. And that's why I say so many times we try to worship what we don't know. we can see him clearly it changes everything sometimes we've learned this that when we come to gather or in life it's you know we should be reverent before God and I believe that I mean but but we've kind of twisted that in in a way that we misunderstood reverence see reverence is typically like you heard the saying like quiet as a church mouse it's like we'll just we just said that's what reverence is as long as I'm quiet and I'm still it's reverent But see, reverence comes out of revering God. Reverence comes out of a place of awe of God, of who he is and what he's done. And when I begin to see this and understand who he is and what he's done, I begin to see him clearly. This awe and reverence of who he is begins to overtake my life. And the fact that I am in right relationship with him then leads to obedience. I begin, I believe reverence is not just coming and sitting still or just being quiet. Reverence is not just something that happens in here. Reverence is living our lives in such awe of God that all of my life becomes an act of worship. And I'm in such awe of God that when he speaks and he prompts, I respond. 
Even just in worship, when I look at this, you read scripture, there's times when people get on their face. There's times when people get on their knees. There's times when people lift their hands. There's times when people sit quietly. There's times when people jump up and dance and praise. And there's times when they do all sorts of things in worship with God. I believe being reverent is when we're able and willing to respond to God as he prompts us to respond. And that's a life of worship. I believe another error we've seen is sort of this Santa Claus Jesus. It's sort of that thought of if I do good, he'll do good. And so we live with this sort of pressure of like, if I'm not good, something bad's gonna happen. If I'm not good, whew, and, and there's consequences to bad behavior, but we somehow feel like we're still trying to earn God's favor. Well, God's favor has been placed on us through Christ. And so we kind of have this mindset of bargaining. God is not bargaining with us. God has put it in front of us, the way to come to him in Christ. We oftentimes too believe that salvation is the end. We kind of think that, well, once I come to Jesus, it's kind of done. I've sort of punched my ticket. I want to tell you and encourage you with this, that salvation is not the end. Salvation is just the beginning. It's the beginning of eternal life. It's the beginning of knowing God. It's the beginning of walking with God. God didn't just save you from something. He saved you for something. It's why we gather. It's why we're the church, the body, not a building, the body, because God saved us for something. He saved us to be the renewing agent in the world, to be people who go. It's not just so that we gather. We gather so that we can then scatter into the community and into the world. We have a greater purpose than just coming together, singing a few songs, listening to some guy talk and going home. It's much bigger than that, but we misunderstood it. We made it about salvation. And at the end of salvation is me. And that oftentimes becomes the end, but I can't my purpose apart from you. You can't fulfill your purpose apart from me. I can't fulfill my purpose apart from the church down the street, Compassion, or First Baptist, or First Methodist. We can't fulfill our purpose alone. We fulfill it with each other as we come together, united by faith and the Spirit of God, and we begin to carry it out of this place. But we've got to get out of this place of thinking that salvation is the end when it's just the beginning. We lost our ability to do what God created us to do, to rule and reign over the earth in a way that brings him glory. But through Jesus and the power of the spirit, he's given us back that ability to be a renewing agent in the world, not to just be people who sit here waiting on a time to die so I can finally go to heaven. And see, the Bible teaches us, even right here, that true worshipers are worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth, empowered by the Holy Spirit, worshiping God for who he truly is. But if we don't understand who God is through his revelation of himself in his word and through Jesus, the only thing we're left with is an opinion about who God is. So what does the Bible teach us? about who God is. 
We read in Scripture, teaches us that God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God's present everywhere. God's unchanging. God's incomparable. He's inexhaustible. Like, we'll never understand the fullness of who he is. The Bible also, listen to these. The Bible also talks about, though, that God is kind. God is patient. God is gracious. God is merciful. God is loving. I'm going to say those again. Kind, patient, gracious, merciful, loving. And then God is also righteous, meaning he cannot pass over wrongdoing. God is just. He does what is morally right and fair and is no respecter of persons. In other words, he's going to do what is morally right and fair with every person. And because of his righteousness and his justice, he has anger or wrath towards sin or evil. And so when we look at this, how do you reconcile kindness, patience, gracious, merciful, loving with righteous, just, and wrathful? We look at it and we say, well, God loves us. And that is true. He loves us. But listen, we've all sinned, right? We all know this. We've all rebelled against God, done evil. We've all sinned just like this woman. We've sinned. And so he loves us, but he's just and he's righteous. So how is this reconciled? You ever heard that say, I'm sure you have. And you know, when like a parent's about to spank a child, and you always hear people say that this is what they were told. My dad never told me this because he knew it wasn't true. But they'll say, this is going to hurt me way more than it's going to hurt you. You ever heard that? Well, like my, my dad knew this is going to hurt you way more than it's going to hurt me. And so we hear that, right? And so it's like this thought of I love you, but the right thing for, for me to do is to punish what you've done and it's gonna ultimately be best for you. But we look at this and we look at God and, and there's all this injustice and evil and sin and he looked at the world and he loves the world. But over here, he's righteous and just and he's angry towards the sin and the evil that's taken the world and marred the creation. And so how does he reconcile it without destroying the ones he loves and over here remaining righteous and just. The answer to that is what we celebrate today. It's the life, death, the cross, and the burial of Je and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How do we reconcile that? Some of you have heard me say this multiple times, but I'm going to say it again because I want you to hear it. God's kindness and patience and graciousness, mercy and love is reconciled with his righteousness, justice and wrath towards sin at the cross. It's in the cross that we see the love of God put himself on the cross. It's at the cross we see the wrath of God, the justice of God, the righteousness of God poured out fully on Jesus for our sin. It's when he lifted off our sin. He placed all sin on himself. Listen, it wasn't just the little sin we like to admit. Like, yeah, I do. I gossip a little bit. I know I'm a gossip. It's for the things that if it were on the screen, we'd be like, oh dear God, kill me. He died for all sin to make you and I right with him. And he had no sin. You want to talk about unfairness. The one who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. That, when we see that, that brings reverence. That brings awe. That brings a love of God 
that, that we see, when we see the love that was truly poured out on us. Listen, I know a lot of y'all, and a lot of y'all, you ought to be very thankful that he took your sin. Just like I am. It's all reconciled in Jesus at the cross. Our understanding of God has to be based on who he's revealed himself to be in scripture. And listen, everything must be viewed through the life, the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. That's what leads us to the love of God. For some of us, the misconception is this. Well, if God really loved us, this would not have blank. This would not have happened. That would not have taken place. I've had those questions in my own life. At the end of it all, we come back to this place of kind of being like, I don't know. Why did that happen? I, I don't know. But this is what I do know. We cannot look at the cross and see Jesus, an innocent man, hanging there, dying a death that we should have died, knowing that God put him there. Nobody else could have put him there. Jesus put himself up there. Had he not laid his life down, then nobody could take it from him. But he willingly went to the cross, died on the cross. We cannot look at him upon the cross and not make the comment, make the, come to the knowledge that God is good. And all the messed up junk in the world, the cross rises higher and speaks to us the truth of God's love, intentions, and purpose for us. The last thing I want to tell you, verse 28 says, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Listen, many people who have studied this, they, they believe that that is symbolic of this change of paradigm, that she went from thinking uh, about this physical water to recognizing that Jesus offered this spiritual living water. I want to encourage you today that church, we've got to leave a lot of our old understanding behind. We've got to leave a lot of that old paradigm behind and we've got to pursue Jesus as he truly is. Being led by the spirit and walking in truth and worshiping in spirit and truth who he truly is. Today, if you're sitting here and you're like, well, that's great, but how do I know that? I would encourage you just to go back and read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's going to be some stuff you don't understand, but just read it looking for the heart of God as you see it in Jesus. Ask God to open your eyes to begin to unwind things that we've learned um, from our experience, from our culture. And my prayer, as I said in the beginning, is that we all, we begin to see Jesus, to see God with fresh eyes. I want to pray for us this morning. Lord, thank you for the revelation of who you are. Thank you for grace, God, you doing for us, in us, and through us what we can't do on our own. Lord, I pray that we would filter all of our experience, even your word, through the cross, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Help us to see you more clearly, God. I pray that 
we'd see clearly and God, that our lives would be overtaken with love and all for you. God, I, I, I want that in my own life. I need that myself, Lord. Draw us closer, Lord, to you. Lord, as we leave here, I pray it would be with a greater desire to pursue you. In Christ's name we pray.